those of you concerned that I'm not using a Bible because I have this thing, let me assure you, I do have a leather cover on it. Okay, so yeah, well, you can feel safe about it. Uh, well, you surprised me. You came back. It's glad to see each one of you here today, and uh, I don't think I scared too many off, Rex, but anyway. Well, seven? I scared seven off. Okay. You tell me who they are, and I'll send them a gift to get them to come back, you know. I, 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 all right. Well, we're going to be looking today at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and again, it is one verse in the original Greek Testament. Uh, now, last week when I said that about the previous passage, the first part of chapter 1, some of you looked at, down at your Bibles and you looked up at me and you looked at your Bibles, you looked up at me and your mouth was open like a, you know, calf looking at a new gate kind of thing. And, and uh, I knew what you were doing. You were counting verses and saying, no, that can't be one paragraph, one sentence, I mean. That was like, you know... 12 verses, and then today is 8 verses, like that. And next week's going to be 10 verses, because the first three sentences in the book of Ephesians take up one and a half chapters. And that tells us, again, as our English grammar teachers, and some of you, I think, probably were that, because you answered real quick last week, every sentence has one complete thought. And that tells us in interpreting and in being exegetes of the scripture for proper application not to dig deep into the weeds of a word or a phrase and miss what it was written to be. Now, I believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, and don't get me wrong, but God did verbal inspiration through the linguistics of language which means grammar oh I think every word that we look at and that's why word studies are valuable all of that is valuable in understanding scripture but never never forget the basic concept of how God revealed his word to us he did it through linguistics he did it through language which includes grammar and includes lots of things but do, you want, do, but do you know the one thing that the inspiration of Scripture and its verbal inspiration did not include? Verses. Verses were not in the original inspiration of Scripture. That came along a lot longer, and, in, and I think church history bears the truth out that about in the Middle Ages, when they finally decided to add verses, and even beyond, they kept modifying and editing and so forth. Uh, the reason for verses was so you could find things quicker. And that was the beginning of one of the most horrible things that has ever happened to biblical study and the proper interpretation of Scripture in the history of the church. That was the beginning of proof texting where we began to have in our minds this idea that if I find a verse to explain something, it's sufficient. It's not. You have to have the context of that verse. And then you have to have the proper understanding of the linguistics in it. Vocabulary, grammar, 
syntax of how the word structure and the grammar works. All of those things and then the, the kicker that just makes it so, each, so much fun to do in biblical exegesis, then you have to understand the historical context. Now, there's some passages in the Bible that if you just literally take the verse out of its context, you'll never get the meaning correctly because you don't understand the historical context of it. Back when I was a, a young lad, back in the Dark Ages, and uh, went to school at East Texas Baptist uh, College then, but now it's East Texas Baptist University. We grew up, and I think that means they told me one day my degree from there is more important now because they're a university. But uh, I, I wouldn't dare go back in time and tell Dr. Atkinson's or Dr. Simmons that that was true. But uh, I noticed that back in those days, I remember Dr. Billy Simmons was one of my New Testament professors, and uh, he said, we practice what's called the grammatico-historical method of biblical interpretation. And boy, once he explained the importance of understanding linguistics, grammar, word meanings, syntax of how it all fits together in structure, and the, whole, the historical context of that passage used in the context of the book, Boy, it made such perfect sense. You know, there have been certain times in my life where there were light bulb, life-changing times. One was the life-changing light bulb light time when I had biblical interpretation from the grammatical historical method of biblical interpretation explained to me. Because, see, prior to that, I was raised in the typical little Baptist boy school of thought where you did proof texting. When I was a kid growing up, my father was a pastor and I loved him to pieces, but he wasn't a really theologically educated pastor. He got lots of degrees, but they weren't all in theology. And uh, dad practiced proof texting because that was what he was trained in, in the church world he was in. And, and when I became a young preacher boy at the age of 13, First thing my family did was go buy me a Thompson Chain Reference Bible, which is the masterpiece of proof texting tools to have in your hands. You want to find a verse that deals with a subject? Just, oh boy, there's a verse. Oh, I like that verse. I'll use that one, you know. And that's what you did. You found the right verses to say what you wanted to say. And, of course, that's one reason why so many of us resisted new translations when they first came out. Honestly, isn't it? Because... They changed the verses where they didn't say what I always thought they said. Only problem is, they really didn't say what you thought they said because of grammar structure and so forth in the old original King James that I was raised on. Well, lo and behold, life-changing minutes became life-changing lifestyles for me. And one of the most important ones was when I learned to practice text-driven teaching, just like Dr. Stan does. That's why I was so refreshed when we came in and sat underneath him. He takes the text and goes where the text goes, and he doesn't vary. And I love you for that, Dr. Stan. You've been a blessing to my heart because of that. So in the text-driven concept of thinking about Scripture, we want to look today, starting with verse 15, as Paul begins to pray. 
Now, Paul's prayers are filled with theological truth. Now, understand as we read through this, he's talking about what he's been praying for. So you follow along in your Bible while I read this text together for us. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I kept asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul prayed, basically, and I think the main meaning of this one sentence is, that we might know God personally and intimately. And in that prayer, that we would know God personally and intimately and all that is involved in it, I think he sets forth three facts to start with that deal with the reasons and the facts for our intimate relationship with God. God's relationship with us that he wants to have and that he has worked hard since the foundation of the world we saw last week and we'll see even more next week. All of that work of God and his sovereignty was done so that we could know him personally. It did not come about simply because of willy-nilly accidental things happening. It was part of a plan and purpose of God that he worked to provide and make possible so that we would know God intimately and personally. You know, a lot of people view the Christian life because a lot of us in our past have lived the Christian life that way as to be in a list of do's and don'ts. And the more do's and don'ts you obey, the more you're a good Christian. Maybe you were raised like that. I was. I was, I was raised in, in a family that wasn't necessarily a healthy Christian family. In fact, one of the subjects I teach on frequently is something called toxic faith. And that kind of fit my family, my relatives more than my own father and mother. But in the context of the world Chuck Vance was raised in, it was more legalistic and toxic than it was healthy. When I got away from home and got to college and got into my, my degree work and was studying the Bible for the first time in, in a little bit clearer context, there's so many light bulbs went off in my life and so many game-changing things in my life came about. Well, God works to make sure you have this intimate relationship with him if you accept Jesus as your Savior. Now, verse 18, the second part of it, 
talks about fact number one. And then the last part of verse 18 is fact number two. And then verses 19 through 23 will give us fact number three. So we'll kind of camp out a lot more there. But let's look look back again at verse 18. So he's praying that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened in order. In other words, here's the purpose. That you may know the hope to which he has called you. Um, Hope. Have you ever thought about how important hope is? Have you ever thought about what hope really means? In the field of psychotherapy that I spent many years making my living so I could pastor small churches, I uh, worked with lots of people who needed hope. Now, they came in for other reasons. They would come in sometimes for, i got to learn to deal with something that's seriously wrong with me and I got to learn to get a handle on it. It may be a physical illness. It might be a situation involving some part of the family or so forth. But the bread and butter of counseling, of psychotherapy, is a word called depression. Now depression is an interesting concept. We all hear so much about it on TV and they tell us how to diagnose ourselves over and over on TV with all the commercials put out by the pharmaceutical companies that create all the antidepressant medications. And we look at it and we see it and it's probably not a one of us if we didn't sit down over coffee and put our heads together. Between two or three of us we'd come up with every one of the major symptoms of depression that they teach us all the time so we could actually diagnose each other, you know. Well, depression has many causes, many facets. Depression is, at its root, a chemical brain change that takes place because when our brain cells are in depressed state, they don't produce the proper kind of chemicals, which we sometimes call neurotransmitters, and the brain quits making electricity go through like it needs to from cell to cell to cell, so our thinking is good and we keep things in a clear perspective. That's why medication is important, usually for depression, because the medication helps the brain cells start working better so that they create the neurotransmitters and the brain starts functioning. Every time you get down on a blue hair day, I used to call it. I guess I still do because I just did. Every time you have a blue hair day, you know what you do to your brain cells? They quit working. They don't produce those neurotransmitters. Everybody has a blue hair day, and the next day you get over it, and you snap back and get back to thinking right and and looking at the world in a better way, and then you're not as depressed because your brain cells start working again and producing the neurotransmitters. Before I go too deep into the woods about this, because then I'd have to charge all of you $150 for this session today. Laugh, laugh. Okay. Okay. The main thing that came out of all the depression cases I've worked with through the years, both in the hospital as a staff therapist and in private practice in the church world, working through churches primarily, was that basically what the person was dealing with, once you got the biochemical stuff worked out, was a lack of hope. Something had happened in their life to make the blue hair day stay. Because a lot of depression is what we call situational depression. Something occurs and you can't bounce back. There's a reason why many people who go through divorces have to go see their doctors and get put on antidepressants. 
is because you don't bounce back quickly from something like a divorce, do you? And the reason why so many people who are going through grief after the loss of a loved one that they've spent many years with is because you sometimes don't bounce back quickly from those efforts. The reason why so many in the senior citizens world, like many of us, are in that the fastest rising group of depressed people in our country, in our society today, is people over the age of 60. The reason for that is, is that the changes we all go through, health-wise, family-wise, and so forth and so on, make that blue hair day stay. More antidepressants are sold for senior citizens today than any other group within the United States. That's, that's just a fact. In fact, Xanax, and, which is anti-anxiety, and the Prozac family, which included Zoloft and Paxil and so forth and so on, and the Effexor family, all those different families of antidepressants made their money on you guys in our generation, 60 and above, getting so depressed in the current time period. Now, hope. Hope. You need hope. Do you think that catches God by surprise? Of course not. In his sovereign understanding of how things are and how to deal with it, he knew some of us would grow up and need hope. And he knew that life would sometimes throw us all in a tailspin. And so he wanted to teach us how to have hope. Now, part of the keys to having hope is to have this intimate, ongoing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. My health may change, but Jesus doesn't. So the application of that truth in Hebrews when it says that Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever is foundational to understanding how we can live life without being knocked for a loop like everybody else is. You got to have that hope. Now notice what that hope was kind of based on though. If you'll notice, uh, the source of that hope is not... I'm going to have a positive mental attitude. Some people, when you ask them to define hope, they'll define hope like uh, a positive mental attitude kind of approach. But no, here he says that you may know the hope which, to which he has what? Called you. You see, before the foundation of the world, God decided to call us to a relationship with Jesus Christ and in that calling of us, it shows that he has a firm grip on giving us what we need to be able to walk in life with him and have that intimate relationship. What I guess I'm trying to say, if I can kind of put a bow on it and tie it up real quick, is that your relationship with God was not a haphazard thing with God. Oh yes, I had to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. I had to respond to the call of God to His grace and accept what He's done for me on the cross. But it wasn't a haphazard thing that God did. He did it and designed it and planned it so that I could come to Him and as I came to Him, He would become a source of hope. Hope. 
So sometimes when I get to feeling like I don't have much hope, I, I stop immediately and say, Chuck, what are you doing with Jesus? And I invariably find that I've quit paying attention to my relationship with Jesus Christ. Hope stays strong when I focus on Jesus and who he is. Now, does that mean I'm not going to ever have tough times or problems? Of course not. But it means that I'll be much more prepared to handle tough times and disappointments when I'm focusing on Jesus. Well, fact number two. Now, notice in fact number two, we'll start reading 18 after we just finished with hope. He said, you, uh, he has called you. And then he says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, this refers to the future. And it refers to what he says as a glorious inheritance. Now, years ago, when I was more into proof texting, I would kind of talk about that inheritance as something God gave me. Look what I get as a Christian. I've got this glorious inheritance. And in the future, I'll get the full boat on all this inheritance because I'm going to go to heaven. That's still true. I'm going to go to heaven. And there's a great inheritance awaiting me and you when we get to see the Lord in heaven. But that's not what this verse is saying about it. This verse is actually talking about the purpose that God has for us and the meaning that God has for us in many respects. Now I want you to read this, listen to this again. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now it didn't say to his holy people. It said in his holy people. Now the NIV here and the ESV that I read from last week both make it very clear. So we've got a somewhat looser translation and a very literal translation saying the same thing. That generally means that when the translators agree like that, that's the way it's meant to be taken. And what they're saying is that the, the, the meaning is not that God's giving me this great inheritance that's all mine in Christ. But God is saying that I am his inheritance. Now, Many of you have either done so or you are doing so, investing for retirement. And you just can't wait till that day comes that you start pulling that money out. Of course, you'll complain when that comes because you'll start paying taxes on it. But that's another story. But you've put all that money into retirement planning and working forward and forward to look for it. And if God wills and you don't die before you get ready to retire and draw it, You'll have it for a few years. And you'll look at it and say, well, look at my inheritance. And then you'll do your will and you'll plan what to do with the kids or not to do with the kids with the money that you have saved up, you know. And you'll, you'll talk about this is my estate. That's a big important sounding word for you to say, I have an estate. And sometimes your estate's big enough that you have to have your financial planner hook you up with the right kind of attorney because not just any attorney can handle estate planning. Got to be someone that really knows what they're doing. And so you get hooked up with the right kind of attorney and not just any CPA. It's got to be the right kind of CPA that understands estate planning. And you sit down with your team of your financial planner, your attorney, and your CPA, and you put together your estate plan. 
and it gets complicated and all that fun stuff. Well, guess what? You're, if you're a Christian, you are God's estate. How does God think about you? You ever stop and think about that? Now, I'll be honest. When I was kind of growing up, the mindset I had was God thinks of me as a sinner, unclean, that had to be redeemed. And his mindset about me was, Chuck's such a sinner. And we used to sing hymns like that. In fact, some of the songs I used to sing in church growing up made me feel like I was at a funeral dirge. What a single wretch I am. Remember those songs that used to use the word wretch? It's the way I'm supposed to think about myself because that's how God thinks about me is I'm a wretch. Y'all know what a wretch is. Did you ever stop and think about what a wretch is? A wretch is a person who when you're around him you just want to throw up. Blech. I think that way about some relatives I see sometimes. In fact, what I'm going to see today. But I have to be nice and polite and kind because Jesus wants me to love people. Not necessarily sure that I want to, but I'm going to. Lord, and I've already talked about it. Now, I may need a drink when it's all over, but I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be nice today. But do I really want to have a mindset, an attitude towards God that when he sees me, he wants to throw up. Do you think that's really how God sees you? I hope not. I think when God sees you, he sees you like someone looking at a wonderfully developed, with more development to go, 401k that's all his. He looks at you and me and says, yeah, they're mine. That's, that's one of mine. And in heaven, in the future, I'm going to have them all gathered to me. That's kind of how God sees us. We are his inheritance. That's why he does so much on our behalf. Because we're his. He wants us. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. Yes. But Why? So we could be made in a way clean and whole, forgiven, so that we would be able to come back to God in every way. See, rather than talk about myself as a sinner, condemned unclean, a wretch, I'd rather do what the Bible says about me and say, Chuck, you are redeemed by your heavenly Father because he loves you and he wants you, and he can't wait to be closer and closer to you as you grow in your walk with him. How do you view the Christian life? Do you view the Christian life as a list of do's and don'ts to do? So the better you do the do's and don'ts, the better Christian you are? Or do you view the Christian life as walking with God? Let me tell you how God views it. He explains it. You have to go back to Christmas time to get the full meaning of that. One of those passages we don't ever pay attention to except Christmas time. And the only time we ever hear it sometimes is in the cantatas and the Christian music at Christmas time. When God said, I want you to name this young boy you're going to get. 
I want you to call him Jesus because he will be the savior of his people. That's one name that was given at the Christmas time announcement. Another name was, you will call him Emmanuel. And when you go back to Isaiah, it's quoted just like it was said in Isaiah when they told, the angel told about Emmanuel. When the angel then explained that beautiful Hebrew word, Emmanuel, which means God with us. How does God view our life? How does God expect you and I to view our Christian life? Our life as Christians? He wants us to view it as walking with God. In fact, the best concept to ever in your mind get to try to explain and understand Christian discipleship is not how many verses of the Bible you memorize and whether you read so many passages or verses every day at the same time or all of these quiet time and discipleship type tools some of us were raised with but the most important way to think about discipleship is this discipleship is growing in my understanding and knowing that I walk with God in my life. Now that's why I read the Bible, so I learn more about God and that walk is facilitated. But the concept of your walk with God is the concept of your life in Christ. He is Emmanuel. That is why we have hope. And that is the future that is made ours because we are God's inheritance. And praise God, I can't wait for next week because we really get to dig down on this truth. It's all because of grace. It's all because of grace. Didn't happen because you deserve it. Didn't happen because you earned it. It happened because of grace. Fact number three as I move on. I'm told it's 11.52 on the top of my iPad, so i got to hurry. Because I know you all have to quit at 12 to beat the other people in the worship service to get to the restaurants. That is the reason we exist at Marathon at this time period. And that's why we need to recruit more people to be in our class. Because, see, they'll get to beat those other people to the restaurants too. All right. Now, fact number three in verses 19 through 20 that we read pertains to the present time. Did you notice that once again in this complete sentence there's an element of chronology, there's an element of the past, there's an element of the present, and now we look at an element of the future times. He says in his incomparable, and now we're in the present time I mean, his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Oh my gosh. In the Greek text there are four words that just gang up and form this wonderful, dynamic, magnificent accumulation of words for power showing the magnitude of God's great power available to us as Christians. One of the beautiful things about the languages, the New Testament and the Old Testament, the languages that Bible was was built in, it it doesn't have the sloppiness of English where like in English we have one word that works for a thousand different things like I love my coffee I love my car I love my wife 
Well, which do you love more? We can't tell by what the word means, you know. I know some guys that love their coffee more than their wives, but that's another story for another day. Love means love in English, and we can't define what that means because our language is imprecise. As one person said one time, that English is a lazy language. We use as few words as we need to in vocabulary to get through what we mean to know. In fact, there's a, a translation of the Bible you may not have ever run across called Basic English Translation. And what they did on that Bible translation was they took the basic words that form the foundational meaning and understanding of English, the linguistic words that are used in teaching English to people who do not know English, and they use only words that are in that basic English list and translate the Bible with those words. And it, it kind of comes out where it makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of paraphrasing. I understand that. But nevertheless, you'd have virtually real, real small vocabulary that the words are chosen from because English is a language that is lazy. Greek, on the other hand, and Hebrew are languages that are robust. Now, for those of you... I started to say from Rio Linda, California, and then you know who I listen to a lot of times on TV and radio, I mean. But, but uh, if you have questions about that, ask me afterwards. I'll explain it to you. But it is the truth that a robust language lets you have more precision in meaning and understanding. So here we have four words that are translated power, are works, are working, something along that in English. But those four words carry out four different meanings, showing the magnitude of the power of God on our behalf. Uh, one of those words, I won't get into the weeds and try to pronounce them because that's not necessary right now. Well, one is a dynamic and living force. It's not just power and we have to try to figure out what it means. They're telling us that God's power towards us is a dynamic and living force. It is secondly, another word, it's an energetic power. Another one says it's a power that overcomes resistance. And one is it's just God's inherent strength. So in, in the original text of that, and of course we translate it, uh, in smoother ways and more rigid ways in our translations. But basically, we're trying to describe power from those four words in about three or four of the verses we read here. So, do you think God intends your pow the power he wishes to make available to you and make available for you? Do, do you think that he wants you to have a power that is loosey-goosey and might be okay, but might not be okay? Or does he want you to have a power that can accomplish whatever it is he wants to help you accomplish? Now's a good time to give you a preview of what we'll look at next week. And that's the word grace. Grace means, and you can keep this in your mind till next week when we look at it in greater detail. Grace means God's enabling power for us to do or to be what we can't do or be on our own. I can't save myself. I have to have grace. It is all that can enable me to be saved in Jesus Christ. 
But when you look at the word grace in scripture, it is applied to other things besides salvation. It's applied to living. It's applied to working. It's applied to a lot of things. Grace is what makes it available to us so that God's power lets us be able to do what we need to do because he enables us with grace to let that power accomplish what it wants to accomplish. Well, we might claim with Paul in Romans 831, that key truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? With that magnificent description of power, with those four power words ganging up on the concepts there in those verses. So you have to ask that question like Paul did. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now he closes out this passage though with three manifestations of God's power that are seen in Christ in verses 20 through 23. The first one is we're told that the same power that God uses in Christ's resurrection is the power that he uses on our behalf. I don't know about you but it seems to me the power of resurrection is a pretty significant power doesn't it? That's the same power he uses on our behalf. Secondly, we're told that he made Christ preeminent in all things. Gave him a name name above all names. He gave him preeminence. The book of Colossians is written totally on that point. That's the meaning of that book. To explain and show the preeminence to Christ. Yes, it was written in the historical context of a group of false teachers who minimized the importance of Christ and made it look as though he was barely deity of deity at all. We call them sometimes the Gnostics. But God, Paul wrote that book to combat that theological error and that error in mindset and thinking and declared in that book so clearly that Jesus is Lord of all. He is preeminent. The preeminence of Christ. And then the third and final thing that that power has done as the chapter, these verses close out, is that he made Christ the head of the church. Someone might say, who's in charge of your church, Chuck, where you go now? Well, I don't know. Um, what are you wanting to know? Do you want to know who our pastor is? Well, that's Chuck Swindoll. Do you want to know the names of all the elders? Be honest with you, I don't think I can tell you exactly the name of all of the elders. I need to learn those probably. But the thing I will tell you is that Chuck Swindoll's not the head of this church, or the elders are the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. This is his church. Jesus is Lord. And not only was he given preeminence and declared to be Lord of all, but then he took his special inheritance, his people, that are formed into the church, and he put the Lord Jesus Christ as head over all of the church. Now that carries with, I think, of heavy significance. He is head of the church in the past, present, and the future. He is the head of the church 
wherever it's found internationally and locally. He is head of the church, whatever is on the sign. Jesus is head of the church. Some people get so caught up into denominational thinking, which I'm thankful we don't do, that they can't even see Jesus as in charge of the church. You ever run across someone who was more proud of their denominational label than of Jesus? Are you a Christian? Oh yeah, I go to the First Baptist Church down the street on the square. No, I didn't say that. I said, are you a Christian? Oh, of course I am. Yes, yes. I know what you mean now. Yes, I'm a Christian. When did you become a Christian? Oh, when I was baptized down at the First Methodist Church on the other side of the square. I didn't ask when you were baptized. I said, when did you become a Christian? Oh, yeah. Oh, I think I know what you mean now. See, a lot of people don't get don't get it. Because we fought so many battles proof texting our verses to prove we're better than you guys in your verses. But the fact of the teaching of the text is that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and he is given, appointed by God to be the head of the church universal and the church local. Jesus is the head of our church. Jesus is Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you today that you have given us such an understanding of wisdom and revelation in this text. And we thank you for all that you've done to bring us to the place to where we honestly are yours, God, and we're your inheritance. We thank you for that. And we thank you for all the power you have exercised on our behalf and made available to us through your grace so that we can be what you want us to be and become what you want us to be and need us to be. We thank you, Lord, that you have made Jesus Lord of all with preeminence over all and to be the head of us believers who form ourselves into the bodies of Christ that we sometimes call the church. We thank you, Lord, that you are head of it all. Lord, let us never lose sight of your headship over us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here.